Welcome to the Mystic in the Green Room here at Crosstown Concourse. Um, and thank you for taking the time to meander with us for a little while. As we begin our time together, I want to pause for a moment in recognition of the fact that today is the holiest day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. Um, and if you've been coming to the Mystic or listening to the Mystic for any length of time, you know that usually there are two other folks who are here with us, uh, the Reverend Lillian Lammers, who is spending some much-needed time with family, and Rabbi Micah Greenstein, who you might imagine is very busy this evening. <laughs> He's also probably fasting on, I think John, you said his National Taco Day. National Taco Day. He's missing out on tacos. So, That's a spiritual sacrifice. I mean, it, it, exactly. It doesn't start until sunset. So, uh, <laughs> so you might have snuck one. Breakfast tacos. <laughs> We're hoping that he got a chance to, to take in some tacos before the fasting of this day began. But truly, we want to pause for a moment to recognize that Yom Kippur in the Jewish community, and I think which can be instructive for each of us, is a moment to reflect upon the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness for ourselves, forgiveness for others. Maybe the idea of forgiving God for the ways that we've been disappointed or the ways our expectations haven't always met up with the reality of our lives. Mm. Forgiveness not to set aside the hurt, but a kind of forgiveness that frees us from the burden of hatred. So let's take a deep breath in honor of what this day means for so many of our siblings. And let's honor the work that forgiveness does in and through each of us. And let's allow a little music to center our spirits. So what is a mystic? It's not Muslim prayers on Friday, Jewish prayers on Saturday, or Christian prayers on Sunday. The mystic is a catalyst through music, story, silence, and dialogue. We hope to strengthen our attachment to hopes and dreams. In the mystic, diversity is a prerequisite for all creativity, which is why Crosstown Concourse is the perfect home. In the mystic, the world is far better served by our different beliefs than it could ever be if limited by rigid uniformity. 
And even if this doesn't rock your gypsy soul, as the lyrics to the song say, the goal of the mystic is to not feel better, but to get better at feeling. I ask that we each find the strength to open our hearts and treasure the differences that distinguish us. And may the music of compassion, kindness, spirit, and insight fill this hour. your soul and spirit fly into the mystic and when that fog home blows I will be coming home when that fog home whistle blows Just like days ago And magnificently we will flow Into the mystic And when that fog home blows I will be coming home When that fog home whistle blows I want to hear it I don't want to fear it I want to rock your gypsy soul Just like days of old And magnificently we will flow to the mystic and magnificently we will flow into the mystic welcome again to the mystic this evening I'm joined up here with the one and only Kirk Whalum with Dr. Scott Morris and uh, our guest this evening, the one and only John Carroll, who is, if you don't know, the creative mind behind so many good things in Memphis. 
and is part of um, part of the reason why I was hoping he'd join us tonight is because of our topic uh, today. And I want to jump right into that. So, what does it mean to do good? And if we're supposed to be doing good, how can we do good better? Those are the questions that have been in the back of my mind for the last few weeks after stumbling across the idea of effective altruism. If you've never heard of effective altruism, otherwise known as EA, it's described on their website as this. It's the project of trying to find the best ways of helping others and putting them into practice. It is both a research field, field that aims to identify the most effective ways of helping others and a practical community of people who aim to use the results of that research to make the world better. According to them, uh, EA matters because while many attempt to do good, they fail. But others are enormously effective. For instance, there are some charities that help a hundred or even a thousand times as many people as others do when given the same amount of resources. So what does it mean to do good? For the folks who believe in effective altruism, doing good is understood to mean enabling others to live lives that are healthy, happy, fulfilled, in line with their wishes, and free from avoidable suffering. Healthy, happy, fulfilled, in line with their wishes, and free from avoidable suffering, to have lives with greater well-being. Now, these folks are not united in any particular solution to the world's problems, but rather by a way of thinking. They try to find unusually good ways, such that a given amount of effort goes an unusually long way. So now all of those words and all of that got me thinking about Memphis, of course. The common refrain I heard about Memphis before transitioning here was that Memphis was the most generous city in America, which is quickly followed by the second clause of that sentence that says it's also one of the poorest cities in America. We have a culture of philanthropic giving and investment and as I've heard one person characterize Memphis, is filled with a whole bunch of save the world types. Save the world types who desire to do good. And yet, so many of the ills that burden our city feel intractable. So that brings me to that second question that I was thinking about. Because I think we're doing a pretty good job of doing good in Memphis but how can we do good better? And that means, John, I'm coming to you first. <laughs> I wanna come with to you with that question first because when I hear EA, I hear so many of the ideas behind city leadership. And as you're trying to answer that one, let me offer you a softball question to, okay. to, to, okay. to build up to how we do good better, okay. which may be what drew you to this work in the first place? What drew you to the particular good that you feel called to? Well, um, man, it can sound corny or it can sound right on the nose around here, but um, it was in my pursuit of trying to understand Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, and, and the reality of that for me was is that I spent, uh, I, I was 
you know, born in the South. So I was, I was born a Christian. I didn't have to be born again or anything <laughs> like that. Um, the assumption was I was a Christian. Um, but everything I grew up in and everything I was exposed to was all about, um, man, you better believe in God or you're going to hell. Mm. And, 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 and so I lived in this incredible fear, not in a relationship and that kind of stuff. And so, um, my life was, I didn't want to go to hell. And then, um, also trying to figure out, well, then what I, what I do with this life. Um, but, um, over time, um, really throughout my twenties, uh, just spending time of trying to understand the scripture truly, because it just seems so empty, mm-hmm. um, uh, trying to just, uh, pursue God in the sense of just not going to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, I found out for me, what I found out is that, um, Jesus in the scriptures is his life. There is not about him living so long of being perfect so that he can ultimately earn the ability to die on the cross for our sins. But the fact that, you know, he could have been sacrificed 33 seconds in, but if he actually lived in a way to model humanity for us. Mm-hmm. And then, so if he modeled humanity, what that looked like. And, and really what he did is he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, strength, loved his neighbor as himself. And that was humanity. And so for me, it was trying to figure that out. How do I do that? And I thought that the only way to do that following Christ was to be a pastor or that make as much money as possible as you can and just give it all away. Like those were the only two options that I thought about, right? Sometimes I think I should have chose the second one. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like it'd be more fun um, some days, maybe not with this stock market, but with other days. Uh, but, um, um, and so, but I didn't realize how I was going to fit in either one of those. And um, I had a mentor one time said I should be a consultant uh, just in general. He said, you're really good at, helping people solve problems. You should be a consultant. And I was like, well, what would I be a consultant in? And uh, long story short, I kind of had this vision of what if I was a consultant, helping the good guys do more good? Mm-hmm. What if I could get up every day and and go proactively pursue people who were trying to help people on the front lines and figure out if I could help make them more effective or more efficient or more cost effective or spread their stuff better and and uh, came with that co- concept. and. I said, man, that'd be a good thing to spend a season of my life doing. And here I am 14 years later, <laughs> loving it. So. so your job, as you would describe it, is to help people do more good. Yeah, help the good guys do more good. Or help the good, good guys people, do more good, good. Whatever, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the good that you do, Scott? I thought we were still talking about John. So, um... <clears throat> How would you describe me, Scott? Just <laughs> <laughs> me, me, me. I mean, the, what church health is all about is trying to, in some ways, do what John was talking about doing, is find a way to um, live into what I believe God has called us to do. Um, you know, this whole idea of following Jesus comes down to three things, to, to preach, to teach, and to heal. I mean, we say it over and over again, but most people just ignore that healing part. You know, we take a pass on the healing part. We, we say people with white coats can do that work. And it just, you know, a third of the gospel has to do with healing the sick. You, you don't get to do that. Um, you know, I don't, you don't get to take a pass on it. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, and none of us need to look God in the face at the end of time and have God say to us, did you think I was kidding about that part? Um, so, you know, that's what has always motivated me and it's the driving force behind church health now people look at church health and thinks what we do is provide health care for poor people we do that but that's not 
why we do that. You know, we're, we're not trying to solve the great, great social problems in America. We actually don't know how to do that. Um, what we're trying to do is figure out what is the role of people of faith in this broken healthcare system that we have in America. Mm. Um, you know, we're not trying to necessarily fix it. We're trying to ask what is the role that my faith plays in taking care of people who others seem to not care about. Wow. When I think about um, effective altruism in all my many, many Google searches in preparation for today's conversation, <laughs> right? there's this idea that you can be more effective if, for instance, you decide to instead of give $10,000 to a charity, you give uh, $10,000 to a small uh, struggling village to create water and irrigation systems that thereby uh, allow for the entire region right, to have access to clean, sustainable water. Or the most extreme example I heard was instead of uh, donating my time toward uh, mentoring, for instance, I give my kidney to someone who is in need um, with the expectation that that person is going to multiply right, my efforts. So how do we, um, and Kirk, I want to ask this hard question beginning with you. How what, what's your you... blood type and do you have a kidney? That's what he's about to ask. <laughs> I could use an extra one. Um, <laughs> how do we judge, really, how do you judge the worthiness of the causes you spend your time and resources on? That's an excellent question. And, you know, let me hasten to say that Ruby and I have a kidney, an angel kidney donor daughter, mm -hmm. uh, Courtney, our oldest daughter, who um, was going to donate a kidney uh, for her best friend's brother. So, again, already she's an angel to me. Right. Just imagine that you're giving a kidney, not for your best friend, but for your best friend's brother. And. And as it turns out, she did all the stuff, she was ready, and they said, you know what, I said, you're not a match. We, we came up with that, you know, that was inconclusive or whatever. Are you into the idea of maybe being an angel donor? And we, we're pretty sure we can find a donor for, you know, if this process has its way, and this is Scott's department, not mine. But as it turns out, 20-something people got a kidney that next day because of Courtney. Mm. Like the, the chain of events, yeah. you know, uh, turned out. And, and one of the people who has been public about that was uh, the gentleman who just got elected um, to office in, here in town. Um, um, Ruby. <laughs> Steve Mulroy. Steve Mulroy. Yeah. Right. So, so. Thanks, Ruby. Yeah. So to, to your point, you know, about if. I think there, there's something in that right there, that when we're willing to take that tiny step to, uh, to give sacrificially, there's a you know, mountain of good that's waiting for you. <laughs> but that, like, so you think, well, I'm just one person. But trust me, there's always more good that's gonna come out of your you know, feeble, good that you just do because you know that it's the right thing to do. You'll, you'll hear, or maybe you won't hear about it, but 
Yeah, you, 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 it happens all the time. And so I think mm. that part is inspiring to me. And again, I think about you, uh, John, in particular, and Scott, like w what you all do out there. I mean, I'm, I'm pursuing something that I was driven to do to answer your question. Like, I, you know, I end up pursuing things that I was driven to do, you know, maybe if I'm volunteering at Minor House or whatever I'm doing, but I feel like I'm surrounded by people who are doing good on such a, again, speaking of altruism, just an altruistic level, that it's just inspiring. And let me say, end by saying that maybe that's part of it, that you're being altruistic and being obedient in a, in a way to your calling and what you feel like you must do, that is gonna inspire some people. Like the good that you do has its own trail of good, but there's also the inspiration that comes out of you doing it. Yeah. So, this idea of effective altruism, I think, is really important because um, particularly when you have in Memphis lots of charities out trying to do good, doing yeah. good to a certain extent. Um, but just because you have the resources to, to do that work, you need to be able to evaluate how effective are we. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hope at Church Health, we, we are absolutely committed to the idea that if something is not working or, or, or not even working to the same level that we set out for it to work, mm -hmm. that we will kill it, um, even if there's funding to be able to sustain it. Now, that's an idea that, you know, many not-for-profits, they can't get there. Um, but I think having th thought about it on a regular basis, I mean, John, John, do you ever encounter that? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, you know we, we commit ourselves uh, not just to what we're passionate about, but to the progress of that passion. And we consider it a product. Right. And then uh, and then how do people view that product? And we have to measure the data around that. And then is that effective or not? And we view it as a valuable resource in the sense of our time. You know, like, how are we going to spend our time? And we want it to be the most effective. I think one of the things we wrestle with, um, especially, you know, obviously with such a large scale um, you know, thing that you've got going on and what has become, you know, how big a scale of stuff that we're doing um, you know, what I don't want it to do is become paralyzing for a lot of my friends who aren't in the nonprofit space or aren't in that space where a lot of my friends would be like, well, what? I can't do anything like that. So I can't whatever. And understanding that effective doesn't necessarily mean large. Mm -hmm. You can be really effective with one person, yeah. right? You know, like Jesus was actually really effective with a dozen people, 11 people or so, you know, <laughs> and um, he was really effective with a small group of people. But you can be really effective with one person. You can be really effective at scale. Now, being really effective at scale, like Church Health is, is really complex. So if you don't have really talented people over there figuring that out and a lot of dollars and a lot of strategy and a lot of mistakes that are willing to be pushed through to find the successes, you can't be effective at scale. But everybody can be effective with one, uh, even if you're the problem is, is you're you're not effective one time and then you feel like, well, you can't do it mm -hmm. and you could actually be effective the next time. And then that becomes really contagious and that can actually be more impactful than a lot of things that are happening. And I think mm -hmm. to speak a little bit longer, I don't want to take too much mic time, but so Kirk and I have been friends for a long time. We've known each other for a long time and I'm a big fan of him as a person 
um, but also a big fan of his music and go to his shows and that kind of stuff. And then when I found out that you were spending a day a week, you know, cutting people's hair down at the, you know, my house, you know, I was like, man, that's awesome. And then there's a part of me is like, or you could just go do two more shows a year and you could pay somebody to go do that, like whatever. And you wouldn't have to. And then I realized in this context, I wouldn't have said it back then, but I realized the context is like, he's cutting their hair for him. Mm-hmm. The effective altruism of that is for your soul. You become a better friend to me and a better representation of who Christ is to me. You're more effective for me by serving those people. They, they get their hair cut and they experience your love but I experience your Christ likeness mm-hmm. and I'm inspired by that. That was so effective. That's been effective for me for 15 years, mm-hmm. you know, and has inspired me to become more like you in that little way. Mm-hmm. Right. And look for ways I can do that. Even if it's something that seems small to you, it's been incredibly effective to me. Does that make sense? I thought I was a preacher up here. <laughs> 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 but it, it, Begs a question, I think, to kind of close out this first round of conversation. How effective, and I'm a, I'm a pastor, so I can say this, if we're talking about this the way that we are and framing it out, how effective then are our faith communities? When we talk about this idea of evaluating, right, and shaking things up, or to use your language, Scott, killing things when we realize that they're no longer effective, if uh, the call or the mandate of faith communities is to do good and maybe even to do always learn how to do good better, where do we go? Yeah, when, we are struggling mightily with churches that I don't understand what why they keep the doors open. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the money is going to because they're not willing to kill it. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they're not willing to ask the question, are we being effective? And you know, we're just staying doing this to make sure that somebody buries me. When they don't think about it, every church that Paul and Peter started aren't don't exist anymore. So it's okay <laughs> for churches to go away. I mean, John, <laughs> wasn't your whole business model? I'm going to work myself out of a job in ten years. Oh, that's definitely what we're trying to do. And 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 we had to. My board asked me to stay on past my ten year commitment. I I committed to stay for ten years, and we we're going to supernova. And they asked me to stay, and I told them no. And then three months later, they asked me to stay again. I told them no, and they said, well write up what you would do for the next 10 years if we hired somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then that was like, oh, that seemed, I, I, I spent time doing that. I was like, here's what you should hire somebody to do. And I was like, and I'd like that job if you'd let me. <laughs> and so we, we committed another 10 years of doing this. So, yeah. But, but what would it be like, and I promise start talking so that uh, mm-hmm. Kirk and, and, and Key and Ashley can, <laughs> don't ever tell the preacher that. Um, what would it look like if in our faith communities and in, just the way that we organize ourselves, if we asked that question, if we asked that question that said, all right, what if we had an interim ministry to the work that we do every three years, every five years, what would I like to be doing? Or what could someone else do with this work? Right? If I created a brand new job description for someone to take over what I'm doing, to do good, better, and further, how much more radical would that be for the way that this whole thing works, mm. right? On a social level, on a civic level, on a religious level. Um, and with saying this, some of the most courageous churches, I'm not a native Memphian, I am a New Yorker, and we have a lot of churches that are very big that have less people than this that sit in them. And the most courageous churches that I've ever known were the ones who decided to die. 
and in their dying to bequeath their incredible uh, real estate portfolios and the money from that to seed other ministries and uh, other nonprofits that were doing localized work. And so maybe I guess the question is not how to do good better. Maybe it's sometimes how to die well. With that, please okay. play some music because I'm going to keep on talking. <laughs> so those of you who haven't um, uh, had the, the privilege, pleasure of hearing Dr. Ashley Davis and the great Kia Johnson, uh, please put your hands together. I think you're going to be glad you're here. <laughs>
Nakia Johnson. Wow. That's Ashley David. Man, that was worth the price of admission right there. Yes. <laughs> and Kia, if you keep on singing like that, I'm going to throw something oh, at you. I promise you. <laughs> we all need somebody to lean on. Mm. We were having a hard conversation about faith communities at the end of that first part of our discussion. And yet, as I talked about earlier, Memphis is one of the most generous cities in America. Um, a large part of that is uh, through faith communities and other organizations, individuals. I think I want to start with this very maybe basic question. What difference does generosity make in this city? It might seem kind of obvious to ask, but what difference does it make? Mm. And I'll let whoever wants to go first well, you on know, that I'll, I'll dive in uh, because of that song. Like, if, you know, we can be a resource, you know, uh, somebody to lean on. That that That's not a sexy gig. That's mm. not, you know, that's not something that gets you applause, right? But if there are so many quiet, you know, anonymous superstars who are just, man, I just know how to listen. You know, how huge is that? You know, how, but how much of a blessing you can be just being a good listener. And man, right now we're in a vortex of the suffering <laughs> when it comes to, you know, mental health alone that people are just struggling. You know, all of us, I'm in therapy. We're <laughs> like a lot of people, you know, which is good. But I think that that altruism part to me is so, it can be so personal too, not just, mm -hmm. you know, in the context with uh, the effect of, uh, was altruism, mm -hmm. that you that you were talking about, you know, with, with, with organizations and with you know, philanthropic, nonprofit, whatever. But to me, it's also about, man, the courage to be you, mm -hmm. like to be yourself, to find that. Because if you can find that, you have found a person who has something important to give. Mm. Like my dad used to say, man, quit trying to be what everybody wants. You know, he's, he's like, it's hard enough being who you is, <laughs> much less who you ain't. Come on. <laughs> hard enough being who you is, much less who you ain't. So in other words, you know, if you can work your way into the courage that it takes to be altruistic, you will be a blessing to somebody. I truly believe that. Um, so I think, you know, that song says it all. Like, you're going to end up being somebody that somebody can lean on. And not giving in to the, the allure to, to look away, to walk away, right? That, and when I think about it, it's not just about showing up. It's about showing up and saying, I see how broken it is, and I won't give myself a pass. Mm. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to, um, when I think about my pastoral call, it's just to walk alongside, yeah. right? I might be walking alongside you through hell, mm -hmm. but I'm going to walk alongside and I'm not going to look away. And that, you're right, it, it takes courage, mm -hmm. right? But it's a courage that each of us can cultivate and, and nurture day by day. So it, you can be effective with one. It doesn't have to be walking alongside 100 people. It can be 
person to person, right? That the scripture heart to heart and breast right. to breast, right? Right. Yeah, it definitely could be one. It definitely could be at scale. And I think, you know, you're talking about like how important charity is. So I think um, char- the important part of charity is for you to be able to give, right? Mm-hmm. And so like God doesn't need your money, your time, your intelligence. You know, he's not sitting around like, golly, John could just figure this out. You know, like that, I just was waiting for a solution. I couldn't think it through myself. You know what I'm saying? Or he's not waiting for our riches or anything like that. Um, but he gives us this opportunity to love our neighbor as we love ourselves in this really unique way to uh, to be able to make how the kingdom is to come, you know, mm-hmm. visible in the present, right? And so like, that's such a beautiful thing. And so, you know, charity, obviously, man, fuels what we do, right? I mean, uh, I, I I think this is true for you. It's definitely true for me. If people don't donate to the work that we do, we can't do it. You know, I've got 20 people on payroll. I got to, that. we've got to pay people to do the work that we do. But also if people don't bring their passion, you know, to this, you know, in their care, I mean, there's an aspect of that that is charity and, is, and, and then motivate, bringing their excellence you know, um, it, it doesn't feel like charity because you're getting paid for it. But I mean, like, you know, we say in our office, we don't earn money around here. We You get paid for fuel so you can be on mission. We actually mm-hmm. pay first. We pay on the first of the month and then you work two weeks because uh-huh. it's part of our fuel <laughs> package, right? So, yeah. um, and so we're That's fueling you for idea. mission. Is it crazy? Yeah. <laughs> so we do, we do. Can we pay on the first and then whatever. Job. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> it catches up with you. I mean, in two weeks, you're just getting paid every two weeks, but you're still getting paid first. Because the mentality is, is that you are the charity to that. Like my, you're not, you're not coming here and doing good to earn money. Mm. You want to do good. You just need money to pay bills. Yeah, and yeah. I got to go raise money so that you can have money so you can pay bills so you can go do this good in the city, right? And so that charity really matters. Well, well that is. I mean, the challenge of altruism is it's about doing good without expecting anything in return. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's one thing to sort of feel like you're going to get something back for doing this. I mean, you, you may get something back, but altruism is actually the intention is just doing the good. Um, and I think most people can't buy into that. You know, this is America. I mean, it's a transactional mm. society we mm. live in. You know, I'm, I'm going to do this in, in exchange. I'm going to at least feel good about myself for it. Because the charity is not about the charity. The charity is about earning some sort of Mm -hmm. love or adoration or confirmation or security. Same way with me chasing God so much of my youth was just trying not to go to hell. It had nothing to do about me loving God. It was just all trying about, like, I just didn't want to get sent to hell. I mean, the point here is that the the value is in loving God. Yeah. But the value is not in if I do this and then God will forgive me. Right. Um, It is about the act of doing good in and of itself is all that's needed. Mm. Now that most people in America can't buy into that. I mean, to invoke a, mm. a former mystician, if you will, uh, Reverend Sonia Walker, I was having a conversation with her, um, struggling through some things uh, around forgiveness uh, to connect back to um, Yom Kippur. And we were talking about relationships and she said, you can have transactional relationships. That is, it's America, it's a perfectly fine way to go about things, but that's a harsh way to live life. What if you went about things through a lens of grace, 
right, where you recognize that there may never be a return on what you give out. There may never be uh, the for the forgiveness, the apology that you are looking for. Forgiveness is never predicated on that apology, right? That generosity is, should never be predicated on what we receive back, but it's all part of an economy of grace that allows this thing to keep going, that fuels us. Um, and again, if you have any job openings since you pay first, let me know. Uh, but that, that fuels us, this grace that fuels us to keep going, um, even when what we put out doesn't come back to us in ways that we can recognize. Um, I mean, that true love should be the love in and of itself is the reward. Mm. You know, it's just like a, a child cannot love you back as a parent. You know, I've, I've never actually been a parent, but I, I have that experience oftentimes with, with young people who work at church health. And, you know, it's it, the reward the reward in and of itself is actually the act of love, mm -hmm. you know, without any expectation in return. Um, but that is a difficult thing in the way our world is created. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think it's the most powerful thing I've experienced. Well, I, I can speak from, you know, the vantage point of having raised a few kids. <laughs> um, and and I they know didn't I'm, love you back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not alone here. I know I've got some parents and grandparents. I have six grandkids. Do anybody have any more than me? Uh, no, I'm the oh, boss. Yeah. Overachiever. Um, <laughs> pop, pop rules. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so getting to those grandkids, you know, you've heard the jokes about it, about, you know, it's all about those grandkids, man, because they, they were like, oh, man, Dad, I love when Pop-Pop dances. You know, the, the kids are like, oh, God, whatever you do, please do not dance. <laughs> please don't dance, you know. Well, could you and dance so, for us here tonight, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I may just dance. I may break out. You, Kia, keep it up, and I'm going to dance. But but, but the, thing, the thing is that, you know, the... Man, oh man, starting it around, you know, I don't know, you tell me 15, 16, those kids, something happens where, man, all that gushy, oh man, that gushy love that you were getting from that three-year-old and five-year-old, it just kind of goes away, you know? I mean, it returns <laughs> later in a different form, but boy, that whole season after that, you know, and you find out that, wow. I did not realize how bad a parent we were. <laughs> I didn't realize it, you know, till they told us. I thought we were sacrificing and giving and for all the right reasons. And boy, oh boy, did my 20-year-old tell me different, <laughs> you know, and then the next one and the next one. So we have four kids. But God bless them. I know they love us. But that is a very good example, I think of why you got to get that in your head. And I know I did not. I just expect that there would always be something, <laughs> you know. And, and now it's coming back, of course, now that they're older. Man, they just love and take care of us. But that season is hard mm -hmm. because it makes you realize, oh, this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, you know, forgive them because they actually don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, talking about <laughs> realizing what Jesus <laughs> is is meaning in this other chapter of your life, there's another chapter of your faith life that's getting ready to begin. And I want to give hope that you would share a bit of that yeah. with us. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I had not shared this publicly, you know, only with my family and my friends and my sort of cross-town family. 
But uh, my winding road of faith, and that's good, this is a good place to talk about this. And by the way, if you're listening on the radio or on the podcast, this is Into the Mystic. And uh, you can just look us up. But of course, you can also come to Crosstown and hang out with us uh, once a month. But I, my winding road, uh, you could say as a preacher's kid, Baptist preacher's kid, that the last thing ever <laughs> was going to happen <laughs> was what I will do this coming Sunday, and that is I will be confirmed into the Catholic Church. Mm. Now, that the, wow, an applause. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That must that, be the Baptist. That could be the Baptist. <laughs> uh, it, it is absolutely, uh, just completely out, off the reservation for anything I, I had expected in my life, but just this is the way the path led. But it had a lot to do with people like Scott Morrison, people like, you know, Keith, you know Pete Gackey at, at Manor House. Uh, it had to do with being around people who were about doing the work. I always say that what the Catholic Church did, Catholic Workers Movement did, is it showed me Jesus in the face of the poor. Jesus in the face of those on the margins. So... I didn't see him. I had not. I had never really seen him. I'd seen these pictures of this white dude. And I'm just like, I'm pretty sure that's not <laughs> Jesus. I mean, given the, ge the geography, <laughs> the geography of everything, right? And and sure enough, I was right. That that handsome guy, right away, the Bible says, no, he was. He's not going to be somebody that you're attracted to, you know, physically. He will not be pretty. Right. It's going to be something else. And sure enough, that path of following people who showed me how to recognize Jesus in the face of the poor, I was doing the work alongside them with Father Val, a handworker from, you know, St. Patrick's, where I go, uh, where we go. Um, I was just doing the work and watching these people just give up themselves because they were doing it as to Jesus. Like, I'm giving Jesus a haircut is the way that I was, that I was taught. How would you deal with this person if it were Jesus? Guess what? You've done it unto the least of these. You've done it to me. You are actually giving Jesus a haircut. So that's how I got here. And yes, it has everything to do with altruism because I think that's the hard part. I was like, I can't do that. People would think I'm nuts. Mm. <laughs> you know, but, but if you're going to be who you is, you just got to do it. You know? mm. But I mean, that's, you're getting to this at this stage, this chapter of life. Right. I guess the kind of question I want to begin winding this up with is how, what responsibility do we have to the future of this city? By that I'm meaning, how do we make sure that there is a path laid out for folks to, for other Kirks and Joshua's and John's and Scott's to get to where you're going, right? So I'm going to ask those guys to speak on this, but I will recommend a book that I'm reading now. It's excellent. It's called What Do We Owe the Future? Yeah. You're up to it. What Do We Owe the Future? It's an excellent book kind of about this, but I don't know. How would you guys answer that? I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to hear you talk about the future. I, I don't know if you remember this. The first time we ever met, we sat in your office. Uh, I came there to ask you this question was because um, I, I was thinking about moving to another city. And I wanted to live in Memphis, but I told her, I was like, I don't want to live in a Memphis that doesn't have things like a church health. I was like, 
what happens when you retire? You know, like what what is the future of those kinds of things? And so, like, you know, as we think about ourselves as leaders or as a community leaders, like, what does the future look like? I need you to help me figure it out. So. Well, I think we all need to just look at the fact that our, our world is broken and it needs people who are committed to try to listen as hard as we can to how God has called us into uh, a, a world where healing is all around. And there are plenty of people who are capable of doing that. You know, and our job is to try to tell the story as best we can and live into it day after day after day. I mean, the, the, the thing that is missing oftentimes is that ability to see the long picture. You know, we, we are, it is very good to, it's very easy to start something. It is very hard to sustain something. Um, and yet that is how you bring about change. You know, it's not just you get it done today, but it, can you do it tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that? You know, so I, mm. I, I, I've become very optimistic about that because I, I see people every day uh, within our world at Church Health of young people who, want to go make a difference. I mean, I know you see it too, John. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think um, as I process and think through that, um, you know, one of the, um, I, I think one of the best things for us being effective in altruism is realizing that um, we can't do everything and we weren't mm -hmm. designed to do everything. Yeah. Uh, I think that a lot of times that whether it's, the movies or just the hero story or just our internal desire is that we want to save the world or we want to help everyone. And the model that Jesus gave us was like actually really confined, right? Like the most impressive thing I think that Jesus did as a human was not use his, you know, uh, godliness to just be awake all the time and help everyone to do whatever. He just kept limiting himself to model for us, mm -hmm. right? And he modeled for us to realize that there's nobody rich enough, there's nobody smart enough, there's nobody whatever. In fact, we're the body of Christ, right? And mm -hmm. so, um, uh, you know, if somebody tries to do everything, they're not going to accomplish anything, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if everybody just does something, um, we might accomplish everything, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's the... Uh, the real mark of that is that realizing, like, if we're the body, then what do we do? And not just as individuals, but even as faith communities, you know, or as organizations or as governments or as business, like if we all chip in and, and be that body, mm -hmm. uh, that that's, that's our future. And so, um, and really line that down to, are we going to consume and criticize? Is that the path we're going to take mm -hmm. as humanity? Um, uh, that's really rooted in fear and what is what's for myself or am i going to go create and cultivate mm. am i going to go live out you know that's the image of god is at, you know go create and cultivate the world mm. so with that we probably need to move on and listen to kirk one more time so, I think yeah. so. or 10 more times as much as you want to play i'll sit right here <laughs> i'm gonna listen to, i'm gonna listen to kia and uh, ashley i just get to play along So this next song that we're about to do um, was actually originally written by the Reverend Milton Brunson. And we thought that it would be fitting for the, the title, the discussion, to always remain available, to remain open, 
Um, and I hope it ministers to you the way it's ministered to me for many, many years.
is empty and I am available to you. Into the mystic, we've come tonight, or wherever you're listening to this right now, and we've wrestled with this thought uh, of effective altruism. And ultimately, what we wonder is, is do we believe in ourselves enough that we can love someone else so much that it really matters in a way that's not about getting something for us, but about truly giving something to them. May we believe that we were designed on purpose, mm. intentionally, in a specific way to be able to have specific strengths and passions and desires that would lead us on the road to collisions with people, either proactively or reactively in a way that would give us opportunities to love. And may we lean into the belief in ourselves. May our belief in God and our pursuit of becoming like Jesus create a belief that God made us this way on purpose. And that if we believe in who God made us to be, that we believe in ourselves, that nobody can beat us at being us. And that's exactly and the only person we're supposed to be. And may that confidence quell all insecurity, all doubt and all fear, and lead us into roads of loving whether that be one or at scale. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you for being here tonight, for listening on WYXR, and we invite you back on uh, November 1st, the first Tuesday of the month at 6 o'clock here in the Green Room at Crosstown Concourse, and Kirk will take us out. Ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't 
Just call my name. I'll be there in a hurry. You don't have to worry. Cause baby, there ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting. Come on, play a little bit right here. Thank you. We'll see you next time.